so these past few months, we've been in the book of Revelation, and I hope by now that you're seeing that the book of Revelation is not just uh, some theoretical, like, end of the world, day after tomorrow, disaster movie stuff. Like, like I think a lot of culture views Revelation kind of like, okay, there's a, an atom bomb and lightning and tornadoes all happening at the same time, or maybe like a, a giant has taken a bite out of the earth and... I don't know, like it's melting away. Um, there's also, like, this, this is my favorite. Like, the end is near. Angry Cat says, good, good, I'm ready. I hope that, that by the time that we finish going through the book of Revelation, that you can, you can kind of be like Angry Cat here, who, who doesn't fear the end. What is it? Grumpy Cat. It's Angry Cat, Grumpy Cat, Mad Cat, Cat, cat with Frown. I hope you can be like Cat with Frown here. Cat with Frown is not dreading the end of the world. He's not, um, he's not afraid. No, he's like, bring it on. I'm ready for this. I'm Grumpy Cat. Angry Cat? Frowny Cat. Whatever. The book of Revelation has so much good stuff in there for us, not just uh, about end-time events. It has a ton of that, but it also just has a lot of practical, life-changing truth of how God wants us to live in preparation for the end times that are coming. And so there's a lot of practical, everyday things that we can walk out through Revelation. And so a couple weeks ago, we were in uh, the letter to the church in Sardis, where we looked at how God doesn't care about our reputation. He doesn't care about how we look to others if it's not backed up by godly character and love and affection for Christ. And then last week, we looked at the church in Philadelphia, the letter to them, and it was all about how Christ opens doors and no one can shut them, and Christ shuts some doors and no one can open them. It's all about how, how Jesus is the sovereign king of the universe and what he says goes. Whatever Jesus says, that's the final word. He has the final say. So this week, we're going to be in the letter to Laodicea, the church in Laodicea, and I'm going to be honest, this is, it's kind of a, an intense letter. Um, it, it's kind of a, a gut punch. Um, but Jesus always tells us what's good for us, not just what we want to hear to feel warm and fuzzy inside. Jesus is more concerned with what's really going on than just you know, how, we, how we feel, if we feel comfortable. No, he wants us to know his truth so that we can have a fuller life, so that we can enjoy life more, so that we can experience more of what he has for us. And so prepare yourselves, because the letter in Laodicea is, is a bit of a gut, gut punch, but remember that, that 100% of every syllable that comes out of the mouth of Christ is true, it's for your good, and it's for his glory. So remember that as you read this here today. So before we get any further, let's jump into the letter. It says, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things that you do, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you're like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. 
So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you'll be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you'll not be ashamed of your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so you'll be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone that I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. And we'll share a meal together as friends. And those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. So right off the bat, Jesus does like he does with all of his letters. He addresses his own character, and he, he sets the stage for the one who's speaking these tough truths. And so he sets the stage by saying, look, this is who I am. I am the amen. I am the amen. What does that mean? That's kind of a, a weird phrase. I'm the amen. Well, if you think about it, it's communicating. Jesus wants you to know that, that he is the final word. What he says goes. You know, like if you've ever been to, have you all ever been to like a, an old, maybe like a Southern Baptist church or like an old school church where, where people are, are preaching and they say something really convicting, and somebody in the crowd just goes, Amen! Preach! Yes! Amen! Hallelujah! That's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that, that Jesus is communicating here. When, when people scream out Amen to something, it's because they're saying, Yes, that is true. I agree, I agree with that. That's, that's the final word. That's, that's all that needs to be said. And Jesus is saying here, Look, I am the final word. I am the truth. I am the exclamation point on all of history. And what I say goes. So he says, I'm the amen. He says, I'm the faithful and true witness. So what's a witness? A witness is just someone who testifies to the truth of a situation. So if you think about like in a court case, you have witnesses that come up and they'll, they'll give an account of what they've either seen, experienced, heard, what they know, all they're saying is, hey, this is, this is what I experienced. This is the truth of what I have experienced, what I know, what I believe is true. And so Jesus is saying here, look, I am the, the faithful and true witness. Meaning, okay, what is Jesus witnessing to? What is Jesus the witness of? Well, Jesus is witnessing to the fact that he is God. He's witnessing to the fact that, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, He's witnessing to the fact that in him we find all of our purpose, all of our identity, all of our fulfillment. He's witnessing to the fact that, that God is greater than anything or anyone we could ever imagine. He's witnessing to so many different things, and everything that he's saying is true. And then he goes on to say, I'm the beginning of God's creation. What does that mean? Is that, like, was, was Jesus... Uh, a created being? Is Jesus created by God? Like maybe the, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witness believe? Was Jesus a created being? No, absolutely not. That, that is blasphemy to say that Jesus is a created being. No, he is the uncreated, infinite God of the universe. He is the second person of the Trinity. God is one God who exists in three distinct persons, and it is so confusing, and if you figure it out and can understand it, then let me know and let all the theologians in history know, because it's 
unobtainable for us to grasp fully what it means. But Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. So he is the uncreated one. Listen to what John 1, 1 says about Jesus. Anytime you see the word here, the word, that's referring to Christ. So it says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God. The word was God. He existed in the beginning with God, and God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So Jesus was, he, he was the, the beginning. He was the creator. He is God, the uncreated God. And so what does it mean to say that, that Jesus is the beginning of God's creation here? Well, it simply means that, that he was the originator of it. He began it. He, he was the, the producer of God's creation. Everything that was created was created through Christ. So let's get into the meat of what Jesus is saying. He starts off by saying, hey, this is who I am. This is my character. Now let's get into the meat and buckle your seatbelts. It says, I know all the things that you do, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you're like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. So he starts by saying, I know all things, just like he said to every church in every letter. I know all things. I know all the things that you do. I know all your works. And after taking into account everything that I've seen in your life, everything that I've seen in your heart, and you're, you're neither hot nor cold. You're, you're like lukewarm water, and I want to spit you out of my mouth. I mean, those are some harsh things to say, right? Well, okay, so we got to ask the question, what does it mean to be hot or cold? I've, I've heard a lot of people uh, sometimes explain this to mean like, okay, if you're hot, then you're on fire for God and you love him passionately. And if you're cold, then it means that uh, like my heart's grown cold towards God and I don't really love him and I don't even like him. And, you know, you kind of have this, this deadness in your heart. Um, maybe, maybe that's the explanation. But I think that as we look more at the context it begins to be revealed to us because I don't think that Jesus would say, okay, I wish that you were hot on fire for me or I wish that you hated me. I wish that you had a dead heart towards me. I, I can't see Jesus saying that. And so looking at the context, looking at what it says here, what does that mean? Well, Laodicea, the, the church here, the city here, uh, was in a valley and they had no fresh water supply. So they, they were this really wealthy town in this valley, but they had no water. I mean, how are you going to live without water? And so uh, they, were, they were smart people, and they had a lot of money, so they, they fixed their problem. They decided to go to their neighboring cities of uh, one called Heropolis and one called Colossae, where the book of Colossians was written. So Heropolis is this city that's like 10 or 12 miles away, and in Heropolis are these natural hot springs um, let me see. The, yeah, so there's my hot springs. That's, that's Heropolis. That's the hot springs. Um, I, I was going to show you a different picture, but it had like these, these old European overweight men in Speedos bathing. And so uh, you're welcome. I, I did this for you. I'm here to serve. 
Um, so, amen, that's right. Let it be. Uh, so this is Heropolis. It's the, uh, the hot springs are there. And so they had this natural uh, flowing fresh water in Heropolis. And then you look at Colossae, Colossae, and they had a river running through it. So they had this fresh, cold mountain water that they could go and drink from at any time. So Laodicea has lots of money, but no water. So they fix their problem by using their money to get water. So they build these aqueducts, these pipes, and they run them the length from Heropolis and Colossae all the way into Laodicea. So they have 10 or 12 miles of these, these pipes that they're bringing in water to. One of them is bringing in this scalding hot water. One of them is bringing this ice-cold mountain water. But they're all coming into Laodicea. And so it's over 10 miles away. So what once started as scalding hot water, as it goes, as it slowly drains down into Laodicea, it gets into Laodicea and it's, it's lukewarm. It's not as hot as it once was and it's kind of sat in the, the mildew. You can see the mildew and mold in there. So you got like this, this what, what was once fresh, hot spring water has flowed in, and now it's, it's lukewarm, and you drink it, and you just want to spit it out. And then Colossae had, had this, um, this fresh mountain water, this river running through it. Well, when this ice-cold water goes through this pipe 10 or 12 miles, it gets to Laodicea, and you drink it, and it's like, oh, it's lukewarm. It's, ugh, it kind of makes you gag. So when Jesus was saying to these Laodiceans, look, you're, you're neither hot nor cold. You're like lukewarm water that I want to just spit out of my mouth. They knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew exactly what he was talking about. And so the question we have to ask is, okay, what does it mean to be hot or cold? Obviously, those, those are amounting to good things. And so what does that mean? I mean, you can kind of have some loose interpretation. Maybe, maybe hot water, like the springs, the hot water springs are, are useful for, for bathing and cleaning, uh, like soothing achy muscles. So maybe like being hot for God is, um, is like soothing other people's aches and pains by encouraging them. It's, it's cleaning yourself from sin. Yeah, maybe. Maybe like cold water is, is useful for refreshing and, and drinking when you're, you're parched and, and you're dying of thirst. So maybe like we're supposed to be like, like Jesus is the living water and we're supposed to... So you can see, you can kind of like, okay, loose interpretations here. Um, we don't really know what cold or hot is equivalent to here because it doesn't tell us. What we do know is what lukewarm is. And so by looking at what lukewarm is, we'll be able to know, okay... What's the opposite of that? So Jesus presents the problem. He says, you say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So here, lukewarm equates to pride and self-sufficiency. Loving, loving our, our money loving what it can do for us more than what God can do for us. So these, these Laodiceans were a very wealthy city, and so 
They, they had all this money. They had everything that they could ever want or need. And because of that, they had grown prideful and self-sufficient. You know, money can be a blessing. Money can be a blessing. It, it can provide us enjoyment in life. It can be used to bless others, those around us. It can be used to advance the gospel by, by giving money to missionaries or mission organizations. Money, money can be a very useful tool. It can be a blessing. It can also be a curse. Because when, when we have a lot of money, we're tempted to rely on what money can do for us instead of what God can do for us. We're tempted to just write a check at our every problem and make it go away instead of coming to the Lord and asking him how he wants to handle it. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew. He says, It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. Why is that? Well, because when we're rich, we forget so easily how much we need God. And this is a very timely message to us because we live, if you live in this surrounding area of the woodlands, we live in the 10th wealthiest town in America. The 10th wealthiest. And this is America, like the richest nation in the world. So if, if we're hearing a lot of stuff about how we should handle money, how we should view money, then we need to be paying attention because this, this definitely applies to us. So Jesus tells us here that the height, the height, the peak of lukewarmness is pride and self-sufficiency. And so if, if that's the peak of it, then we need to test, okay, am I... Am I lukewarm in my life? And so how do, we, how do we test if we're prideful and self-sufficient? Well, I think it begins by looking at, okay, how's our, how's our daily time with God going? Are we spending daily time, are we spending regular time with the Lord? Not just checking off a box saying, yeah, I did the religious thing. No, are we spending daily time drinking from the living water that is Christ, being refreshed, encountering the eternal God of the universe. That's how we, we can display our dependence on God by going to him every day, saying, God, I need you. And then, and then how's, your, how's your prayer life? When you have problems that, that are, confront you, or is your first reaction to go to your own resources, whether that be your, your, your money or your talents and abilities, or your connections, your, your friends? Do you go to other people for advice first and don't really care what God thinks? You just care what other people think? Those are easy ways to test, okay, how am I doing on, on God dependency? Because it's so easy for us, especially in this culture, to just be self-reliant, to pull ourselves up by our bootstrap and do the American thing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a way no matter what, because I'm strong and I'm American and I'm Texan. Boy, Hattie. That's what we do because that's our culture around us. And Jesus is saying, no, that, that's, not, that's not how I created you. I didn't create you to, to do this life alone. I created you to come to me and let me fill you with strength. Let me work on your behalf. When we are self-sufficient, when we are prideful, 
when we don't depend on God, he says to us, look, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. Wow. Like when, when I am depending more on myself than God, he's like, you think that you're seeing really well? You're like a blind person who's just running into a wall over and over again. You think that you're providing for yourself really well, but you're, you're like a beggar on the streets begging for bread. That's the spiritual condition that, that Christ sees. It's often different than our physical condition. So Jesus lays out the problem, and then like a good teacher, he lays out the solution to us. So we have the problem, what's the solution? He says, so I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire, and then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be ashamed by your nakedness, an ointment for your eyes so you'll be able to see. So Laodicea, we've already said, has been a it was a wealthy city. It was one of the wealthiest cities there in Turkey. Well, the question is, what did the source of their wealth come from? Well, the, the Laodiceans understood the irony of what Jesus was saying here because their wealth mainly came from three things. It came from their banking. So they were a major banking center in Turkey. So when he says, buy from me gold, they're like, oh, yeah, we got lots of gold, but we don't have your gold. And he says, buy for me white garments. Well, they were a major wool manufacturing, like clothing manufacturing center. So he says, buy white garments for me because you're naked. And they're like, oh, I thought we had clothes. And then it says to, to buy some eye ointment for your eyes so you can see. Well, Laodicea was a, a major uh, medical producing industries. So they produced a lot of medical products, and especially they were known for this eye ointment that helps with when you had like, I don't know, pink eye or like just pus coming out everywhere of all of your eye orifices. That's what Laodicea was known for. And so some people are weird that I just said all that. Yeah, it was kind of gross. Um, and so Laodicea was known for these, these eye ointments. And so he's saying, look, you have these, these physical medical products so that you can see with your physical eyes, but you are spiritually blind. You're not seeing anything that really matters. So Jesus turns their points of pride, the things that have given them this great wealth, he turns them on their head and says, man, your physical reality and your spiritual reality are two very different things. So let's look at each one of those together. So he says to buy from me gold so you can be rich. Well, gold here, I think, is, is meaning, okay, so buy from me eternal reward, eternal treasure. Matthew 6 says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroy them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. So he's, he says that I need you to buy from me gold. So like, show me my, my gold picture. Daniel, there we go. Look at that, just beautiful bars of gold. Would you like to have those? Yeah, I know, right? So he says to buy from me gold. So he's talking about eternal gold, eternal rewards, eternal 
treasure. You know, so many people are worried about, okay, what am I doing for these, okay, what's my next five years going to look like? Okay, am I going to go to college? Am I going to get a good job? Okay, what's my next 10 years going to look like? Am I going to get married? Am I going to have a family? Okay, and then 30 years from now, am I going to have a good retirement? And, and can I, will I be able to retire by 65? God forbid I retire by 70. I mean, okay, I'm going to work, 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 so that I can play a lot of golf in retirement, and then, and then I can die in my bed peacefully. And, and Jesus is saying, whoa, guys, you missed the whole point here. You worked your entire lives for this physical gold on earth, but you missed out on all the eternal, heavenly gold that I had in store for you. We're so tempted to just live for the here and now. We want to be the next Bill Gates or the next Beyonce, or name your famous person. I don't want to be Beyonce. We want to to have worldly success here. But Jesus is saying, look, if you have worldly success it better be backed up by godly success, eternal rewards. Because you could have the, the biggest palace in the world with marble columns and gold-plated everything, and you could, you could sit on a gold toilet for all I care, but if, if you don't have heavenly rewards, none of that's going with you. None of that goes with you. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm telling you this because I want you to make your lives count. Right now, you're not making your life count for anything besides the here and now, but you're not seeing with heavenly eyes to see the spiritual reality that when you get to heaven, the only thing that will matter then is what you did in my name. Did you get to know me? Did you get to love me? Did you share me with others? Did you serve in my name? So the question we have to ask ourselves here today is, are are you living for this life? Are you living for the next 60 years, 70 years? Or are you living for eternity? What really is going to matter? Because if you're just living for the next 60 years, you're going to be awfully disappointed when you see Christ face to face. And say, oh, Jesus, I, I, did you see all the, the cool stuff I bought? I had a Lamborghini, and, and I, was, I was the president of the United States, and I did all this really cool stuff. Did you see that? Christ was like, man, you missed everything. Only what you do for Christ will last. Everything else is just gravy. It's just, it's just the cherry on top. But so often we miss out on what the eternal truth of our situation is. And that is that only what's done for Christ will last forever, for the next 60 billion years, as opposed to the next 60. Which one are you living for today? So then he says, buy from me white garments so that you can clothe your nakedness. So what does the white garments mean here? In the book of Revelation, especially in the New Testament, white garments symbolize like purity from sin, uh, righteousness, suffering well for Christ. So what is he saying here? Well, he's saying that, look, guys, you have, you have more clothes than you can ever ask for. And on the outside, you dress yourself up in a way that, that everybody is impressed by. Kind of like this lady who has 
this is the largest closet in America. It's three stories, and it's, uh, it's about $500,000. She has, I don't know, a purse for every day of the year. Uh, she could wear four different pairs of shoes every day of the year and never wear the same one twice. She has all the clothes that she needs or could ever want. But just like the Laodiceans, Jesus is saying, okay, so you're, you're clothed here on earth. You're, you're putting on a good show for everybody. You look successful on the outside. But how's your heart? How's your character? How's that, that sin that you've hidden deep down that, that you don't want anyone to know about, that you're letting just sit there and that you've kind of become okay with? It's become kind of like a, a friend. It's become a, a bad friend to you. Jesus is saying, look, you can clothe yourself all you want, but what I care about is what's on the inside. So the question that we have to ask ourselves here today is, is is there any sin in your life that you've become okay with? Is there any sin that that you've just kind of given up fighting and and now you you just kind of like it? I mean, it's addictions to alcohol, pornography. Maybe it's, maybe it's a bad relationship. Maybe it's a bad friendship. Maybe it's uh, you've, you've become the gossip king or queen of your, your friend circle. Maybe, maybe you just really enjoy your own pride, your own arrogance. Maybe that's become a comfort to you. Whatever it is, Jesus is saying, look, you think that you're clothed, you think that you're clothed in strength with this, but actually you're running around butt naked. You have no clothes. Yeah, I said naked. I'm from Texas. Running around butt naked because you don't have anything to clothe you in righteousness. That's the only thing that really matters. And so lastly, he says to buy from him ointment. So that they can see, so that they won't be blind. So what does this symbolize? Well, I think it, it, it's pointing to the fact that we can't see any spiritual reality unless the Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes to see that. In Psalm 119, it says, God, would you open my eyes to see the wonderful things in your word? This was a psalmist. This, this could have been David, one of the, the godliest men in history is saying, God, if you don't open my eyes to see you as beautiful, if you don't open my eyes to see your word as wonderful, I'm not going to see it. So would you do that inside of me? As so often, we, we just try to, to walk through this life mustering up the strength to change ourselves. We're beating our head against a wall. And this, this was my story. As many of you guys know, I, I grew up in the church. I did all the right things. I looked good from the outside, but I was deathly bored of the Bible. And the only thing I thought about God was that, okay, I got my free ticket out of hell. Cool. Now I'm going to pretend like I I know him, like I pursue him, so that other people will think that I'm holy and I get into the club. That was me growing up. And I I eventually started seeing, okay, that's not what Christ called me to. And so I started trying to change myself. I was like, okay, I'm just going to, dang it, I'm just going to read the Bible today, and I'm going to like it. 
And no, it didn't work. Telling yourself to like the Bible doesn't work. Telling yourself to, to want to know God doesn't work. And so it wasn't until I was in my early 20s I had a conversation with a friend that changed the trajectory of my life. He told me, he was like, Kalen, do you realize that the Holy Spirit is the one who first opened your eyes so that you could see that Christ is desirable? Without the Holy Spirit's work inside of you, you never would have been saved. And so do you realize that, that if he's the one who began this good work in you, if he's the one who opened your eyes in the first place, why do you think that you now have to open your own eyes? It's like, okay, God did the initial thing, and now I just got to like just muster up the strength. I'm just, God, just get in there. Just, I, I want to love you more. It doesn't work. And so he was saying, look, you have to ask that, that same one who, who saved you, the same one that opened your eyes so that you could see him as lovely. You could see him as desirable. You have to ask that same God to open your eyes so that you could see the word as desirable. So that you could see God for who he is. The glorious, majestic infinitely powerful, infinitely sovereign king of the universe who looks at you and says, I love you. I know all your sin. I know all your shame. I know all your, your failures. I know every weakness that you could ever have. I love you. That's the God that we worship, but so often we are blind to that fact, and so we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes so that we could see him for who he is. We can't do it alone. We have to beg him to change us. So Jesus continues in the letter. He says, I correct and discipline everyone that I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. So Jesus has just laid down the smackdown with this church. He has laid down the law. Some pretty tough stuff. He didn't say one good thing about what this church was doing. They got the brunt of it. But he doesn't just write them off. He doesn't say, you guys, you guys are dead to me. I don't want anything to do with you. You, you. you screwed up for the last time. I'm done with you. No, Christ ends this letter by saying, look, I'm correcting you and I'm disciplining you because I love you, because I want the best for you. You're settling for the bad. You're settling for the good. You're settling for the great. I have the best for you, and you are settling, and I don't want that for you. You're missing out on so much because of that. Jesus doesn't give up on his broken bride. He doesn't give up on his broken church. And so Jesus doesn't give up on you. No matter how far you've fallen away from Christ, no matter how, how much you, you've become okay with your sin, no matter how blind you are to spiritual realities of, of how wonderful God's word is, how wonderful he is, no matter what your situation is, he's saying, look, I love you and I'm correcting you so that you can change. You're not beyond hope. You're not beyond redemption. As long as there's breath in your lungs, you're not beyond redemption. Jesus ends the letter by saying, look, I stand at the door and knock. 
If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we'll share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Jesus laid out this tough, tough letter of correction and rebuke to this church. But he says, look, I'm doing it because I love you, and I'm still knocking at your door. I still want to come in. I want to eat a meal with you. He's saying, I want a relationship with you. This isn't a one-sided affair where, where you just say your prayers up to God and hope that they, they go up into the ethereal space and he catches them and maybe hears them. No, he is, he is right here with you in this very moment in time. And he wants a relationship with you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to love him. He wants to empower you with his grace and his strength so that you can overcome sin, so that you can make your life count for eternity and not just for the next couple of decades. Jesus corrects us because he loves us. I love what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said, God hates sin like a mother hates the cancer that's killing her child. God hates your sin, not because he hates you. No, he hates it because he knows that it is eating away at your very bones, at your very soul, like a cancer. And like a good cancer doctor, he wants to come in and cut it out, remove it, so that you can experience the fullness of life that he has for you. So you can experience your fullest happiness. Your fullest pleasures are found in Christ. And everything in this world promises us joy, promises us satisfaction, all these temporary things around us. But none of, us, none of it can satisfy us like the infinite king of the universe can. Because we are made to know him. We are made to be with him, to be changed by him. God hates our sin because it's killing us like a cancer. Jesus knows that, that lukewarm Christians have no power over sin. They have no, no purpose in their life that will last. They have no real lasting and deep happiness and joy. He's trying to save us from that kind of a life by loving us enough to tell us the truth here. He loves us enough to tell us the hard truths. Guys, as we respond here this morning, I want you to grab your pen and paper from under your seat. We're just, we're just going to let the Lord speak to us here this morning. Would you just quietly to yourself, just, just ask the Lord, Lord, would you speak to me now? Would you convict me? Would you change me? So the first question that I want you to ask God is, Lord, am I a lukewarm Christian? 
In what ways do I pridefully depend on myself and my own resources to save me? Ask him for a few specific ways. And then ask him, Lord, how do you want me to store up treasure, gold in heaven? How am I living right now for, for this life instead of for eternity? How do you want me to start living for eternity, for what really matters? And then ask him the hard question. This is, this is one of the hardest questions to ask the Lord and to genuinely want a response to. Ask him right now, Lord, is there any sin in my life that I've become okay with that you're not? Is there any, any cancer that's eating my bones that's eating my soul that you want me to cut out. Guys, whatever it is, don't just don't just end by listing out the things that he's convicted you of. You need to take it a step further and beg him to change you. Beg him for his enabling grace and strength to give you the power to change because you can't change yourself. But the holy God of heaven who created you, who knows everything about you, who lives inside of you, if you are a Christian, if you are his, he can change you because he has infinite power. He has infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom. So you have to beg him. Beg him every day. God, stir my affections for you. Help me to love you. Help me to love your word. Guys, as we continue to respond, we have our our tithes and offerings. Uh, it's a, a simple way that you can say to the Lord, I love you more than I love the money you've given me. It's training your heart to love God more than you love money, which is such a temptation in our culture. And then we have our, our communion where we can just worship our Savior who shed his blood in our place, who allowed his body to be broken in our place so that we didn't have to. If you don't know Christ this morning, it's as simple as, as admitting your sin, admitting I deserve hell. I deserve punishment for what I've done. 
So Jesus, would you save me? Would you, by your grace, come and save me? I need a Savior. I want to live for you. As we're going to worship now, I encourage you not to hold back. Don't allow yourself to just go through the motions in a lukewarm way. Depending on yourself. But recognize that right now you need the infinite God of heaven for the very next breath that you breathe. If Christ and his sustaining power and grace does not give you one more breath, does not keep this earth spinning on its axis, does not keep, keep the sun from blowing up the earth with a solar flare, if he doesn't do that, then we won't live. We are so desperately dependent on his sustaining grace and power, and we have no idea. So worship him now, knowing we need him. We need him desperately. God, we come before you this morning and we beg you, Lord, to change our hearts. Lord, we confess that we can't change ourselves, that we have no power, no strength to change ourselves in a lasting way, but you do. So Holy Spirit, we ask you, we beg you, we plead, God, would you come and do what only you can do inside of us? Lord, give us a hatred for our sin like you hate it. Give us a passionate love and affection for you like you deserve, like we need to love you. God, we can't do this on our own, but you can. You hold all power, all authority. You are the amen. What you says, what you say goes. So God, would you speak the word? Or give us the grace to humble ourselves and to pursue you. We need you, God. We worship you now. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.